0: We're in Romans chapter seven uh, this week. We've been walking uh, through the, the book of Romans. Uh, we're probably going to end up uh, at finishing chapter eleven before November when we have missions month, and then a Christmas time, and then we'll pick up chapter twelve um, in January. That'll be a good divide for that. Uh, today's message called Spiritual Schizophrenia. I wanted to talk about this amazing woman um, to start here. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata, and if you haven't heard her story, um, when Johnny was 17 years old. She was just like any other vivacious young woman. She liked to, she liked to hike and to, to fish and to uh, play tennis and ride horses, and, and then at the age of 17, uh, she was swimming in the Chesapeake Bay And she went to dive into the water, and she misjudged the depth of the water, and she was paralyzed from the neck down, and her whole world changed. And then she was rushed off to the hospital to have some x-rays taken. As she was lying on the hospital bed, she was unclothed, only a sheet on top of her. And as the sheet began to fall off, what was her natural instinct? I'm going to catch the sheet, right? She's a modest girl. She wants to keep herself covered. But as the sheet goes to slip off, she finds, man, what was so easy, just a few hours earlier, she's not capable to do anything with her hands or with her fingers. And how much her world had changed. Her mind knew what she wanted to do, but her body was completely unable to accomplish the task. You think about Jesus when he was in the garden with his disciples And he brings them there just hours away before heading down this road of crucifixion. And he he looks at his disciples and he asks them to stay awake and pray with him, right? I mean, Jesus, he, he sets the bar pretty low, right? Just keep your eyes open, boys. Like, just stay with me. And when he comes back to them, what does he find? They're all conked out, drooling on the olive trees. And he comes and he goes, man, what in the world? Like, you couldn't stay awake for one hour? You couldn't pray with me for one hour? And what's the words that he says to them? He goes, man, the Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Like, I know that you want, you want to be there for me, but your body is your flesh. It's unable to. You're weak and you're tired. And man, you and I, we, we wake up every single day, like Johnny, like the disciples in the garden, engaged in a battle. And I'm not talking about Fortnite. And I'm not talking about words with friends, right? Some of you are like, oh, it is my turn. That's right. No, there's a deeper battle here. We're, we're talking about the flesh and the spirit. The flesh and the spirit. And each of us, we wake up in the morning and there are things that our minds want to do that I know, I, I want to spend time with Jesus. And I know for my history as a believer, it's better when I start my morning out with him. But my fleshly finger, it hits the snooze button because I want some Zs, right? And then you go to work and there's that coworker that you can't stand and your mind knows I'm supposed to be patient, I'm supposed to be gentle with them. but My fleshly tongue lashes out at them and talks behind their back. And my, my mind knows, my mind knows that I shouldn't be resorting to those vices in my life. I shouldn't be picking up that bottle. I shouldn't be clicking on that website. But over and over again, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know what I should be doing. I know, I, I want to do good, but I do bad. I don't want to do bad, but I, but I do it anyway. In the words of a great songwriter, my mind is telling me no, but my body, my body is telling me yes. Mm. (laughs) If you know that song, if you don't know that song, you're a much more spiritual person than I am, I'm sorry. I obey the body over and over and over again, but there's good news today. Despite Johnny's paralyzed flesh, her weak flesh, God did some amazing, has done, is continuing to do some amazing things to this woman. And with and, and Johnny, she learned how to paint with her teeth. She's a better artist than most of us are with our hands. Johnny became a best-selling author and began to speak about Jesus worldwide, has, has been in 47 different countries proclaiming the gospel. God has been using her to, to advance, um, advance causes for, for those with disabilities. In, in areas that have, have new ground that's been broken through her. She's been winning awards up the wazoo. You go, girl, right? God Jesus is doing amazing things through Johnny Erickson Tata, and his message to you this morning in Romans chapter 7 is he's promised to do the same through you. Man, We, we are paralyzed without him. Without him, we can do nothing. But man, with his power in and through us, he's called us to change the world. We've been in Romans chapter 7 here, and we want to just kind of zoom out. Remember what we're talking about. Put Romans 7 in its right context. We've called this book, the, the it's the power of the gospel. We see what the power does in, in, of the gospel in our lives, and, and if you remember, Romans chapters 1 through 5 really just hit on, on one key theme, that you and I are completely sinful, unable to please God, and if we're going to be saved, if we're going to become his children, if we're going to receive righteousness, then it must be through faith in Jesus. Nothing that we can do. We can't keep the law. We can do nothing to achieve right status with God. And so what we couldn't earn, God had to freely give us in Jesus, and he did. That you and I, chapters one through five say, we have been declared right in God's sight because Jesus died for us. That, that Jesus's sin was put on, that my sin, excuse me, was put on Jesus's account And Jesus' perfect standing with the Father was placed on my account. That's how we're saved. We call that birth truth. That's how we were born again. So now that we're believers, how do we grow? And that's where Romans 6 through 8 takes us. How do we grow as as a believer? In the same way that we were saved is the same way that we grow. We grow by faith in Jesus, not works of the law. And we see that just like we were declared right... In, in, in Christ, we become right, we start to live out what we've been declared by God and Jesus. We start to become more and more like him, not by keeping the law, not by rules and self-effort, but by Jesus's spirit living in and, and through us. And so then we zoom into Romans 6 through 8, and we look at this a little bit closer. We're talking about how to grow. The big word is sanctification, which just means to be made holy. God is holy. Jesus is holy. So to become more like him is to become more and more holy. This is just talking about Christian growth. And we saw in chapter 6 that we died with Christ. And the beautiful truth, not only did Jesus die for me, but I died with him. My old nature was crucified to the cross and buried into the ground, and it stayed there but I didn't stay there. I was raised to a new life, and it's Jesus' life, now united with mine, that that beats in my heart, that lives through my pores. And then he's going to say, okay, now that you have this new life, what does it look like to start to take steps forward, to to become what you've been declared? And in Romans 7, he tells us how it's not going to work. And that's what we've been looking at the last last two times we've been in in Romans 7. We show that it's not going to be the works of the law that make us more like Jesus. That was never the intent. It's never going to work. And then next week, we're going to start into Romans chapter 8, and he's going to show us how it will work. And it's what we call walking in the Spirit, the power of the Spirit of God in and in, in through us. So we'll look at that. But I'll tell you what, chapter 7 can be sort of depressing. It speaks to some of the struggle and the failure that we experience in the Christian life. I want to challenge you to hang on, to, to walk through this passage, because there is light at the end of the tunnel. And and. Chapter eight. John Piper's called it the greatest chapter in the Bible. How's that for a teaser? Right? You come next week. Keep tithing. They often say the darkest hour is right before the dawn, and we've got to feel the weight of our despair and inability in our own strength before we're going to cry out to someone else. We're going to see that this morning at the end of chapter seven. Paul's going to address the struggle that each of us face as believers—a war within a war within, and what we're going to look at this morning in this daily battle of the flesh and the spirit, we're going to see four things. We want to see the players that are involved in in this battle. We're going to see the problem, the problem that we face, the struggles that we face as a believer in this battle, and then the prognosis, what God has to say about our situation, and then finally the power, the power that's offered to us outside of ourselves. Got my alliteration game on point this morning. All right, let's go. Number one, the players, verse 14, uh, the spiritual law and sinful flesh. Verse 14, chapter 7, there'll be ESV on the screen. Uh, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold under sin. Now we're going to see here, Paul is going to be talking about himself a lot in these 12 verses. In fact, he uses the first person reference. 41 times in 12 verses. He says I 26 times. He says me six times and my nine times. This is a first-hand experience that Paul wants to walk us through. But it's interesting because he's talking about himself, but what you're going to start to see, the reason we called this spiritual schizophrenia is that it seems like there's two different players at war in Paul's mind. It's kind of like you know the, the situation with the angel on the one shoulder and the demon on the other. And you feel like the one's telling you to do the one thing and the other one's telling you to do the other thing and you're kind of this man or woman apart. And, what you, and there's this battle going on inside of you, what you want to do and what you actually do. And what he says here, he says, the law is spiritual, but I'm of flesh. What does that mean, for the law to be spiritual? Well, for the law to be spiritual, where does the law come from? Just like all of the word of God, It's God-breathed. It's inspired by God. And so it comes from God, and therefore God as spirit, everything that he breathes out is spirit. So it's spiritual. It's from him. And just as God is good, everything he makes is good. And so if God breathes out words, they are going to be true, and they're going to be right, and they're going to be lovely, and they're going to be holy. So God's law is good and holy and spiritual because God himself is good and holy and spiritual then he says i'm a flesh i'm a flesh well what's that mean well when you see this word flesh here your greek lesson for the morning the greek word is sarx and and, and the word can can mean several different things and it depends on the context sometimes it means our muscle like the fleshy part of us as opposed to a, a bone or a spleen it can also mean my whole person it can refer to all of my physical body it can also mean me or you as just a human being in general and finally it can also mean a, your sinful nature and, and what matters is the context. Whenever you want to look at a word like this, it's always SARKS. So it's, the, the Greek word's not going to help you. So you got to go, what's the context? And we do this all the time, right? Like with the English word trunk. Well, how do we know which, which word you mean when you say trunk? What's the meaning behind it? Well, what's the context? And I'm getting on the airplane and I go, oh, I forgot my trunk. You probably don't mean you forgot your elephant's nose, right? You may have. I don't know what you're doing in your spare time, you weirdos. But, or maybe I, my, spare, my spare tire. Is, my, is the spare tire in the trunk? I'm not checking my swim trunks for a spare tire, although that's a body image issue. We'll talk about that another week. Um, what's the context of, of trunk? That'll determine its, its meaning. So the same thing here, and we're actually going to see in this passage, sometimes it's referring to my body, and sometimes it's referring to my sinful nature. So we just have to watch out for the context, and, and you get your sleuth glasses on, and see what he means when he, when he says flesh. Here Paul's saying, I'm a flesh. I was born a human being from Adam, and as such, I was born with a sinful nature. I was born slave of sin. Only, sin was my master. I had to do what it said. That was the reality of my first birth. And the sin nature that he wants to talk about, it's, it's, it's the, what we call the indwelling sin. Okay, the sin nature is inside of us. Now, in Romans 6, what do we learn is true of the believer? That I'm dead to sin. I'm separated from it. That it's been crucified, right? Jesus defanged it, took the power of sin away from me. It's no longer my master. I'm no longer its slave, but we're going to see as long as we live in these mortal, fallen, hip waddling bodies, we're going to have sin indwelling in us. It'll be here. Its presence will be here, and the lies that it whispers to us are very real. We're free from it, but we can still voluntarily listen and obey what it says. But we also know that we've got Christ in us now, Christ who's defeated sin living inside of us and us living in him. So I'm free from the old nature's power, but it's still my roommate, and I have to learn how to live with it until that day, and I see him as he is, and I get my new body. Anybody here ever had to live with an annoying roommate before? If you're married, don't raise your hand. I don't want to make this a rough day for you, man. I remember in college, I had this European roommate. He was crazy, and he hated everything I held dear to my heart, like Hershey's chocolate and American football. And he would say, when we, we had a Super Bowl party, he said, you Americans, you are obsessed with food. All you ever do is eat food. You go to your party, and and all it says on the flyer is, food, come and eat more food, you crazy Americans. I'm like, shut up. (laughs) Food's awesome, man. (laughs) To Europe. Put that wall back up. I had to learn how to live with my roommate, right? My crazy, crazy, Harry Potter-obsessed European roommate. And we have to learn, while we're in this body, what it looks like to live with sin live in victory over this indwelling sin and what we're going to see this morning this spiritual schizophrenia there's two players in us Have you seen the new movie ready player one we got two players inside of us the first player is this new nature this new nature that desires to do what god wants us to do that's that's jesus in us is always going to will what the father wills but then we also see this indwelling sin there's also a player two who's ready And and this is the old nature, the desires to do sin. And we're going to see inside of us this battle that's raging between wanting to do what God wants us to do and wanting to do what I want to do. So what's the problem here? Well, the problem is my old nature, my flesh, doesn't want to obey God's law, what the new nature wants. And there's there's a tension there. And you want to listen. If you've read through this passage, you you know what I'm talking about. Paul is all over the place here. And and you got to be cautious because there's some whiplash that can come as you read through these next verses. Look at what he says. This is the struggle. See if you can identify with what Paul walks through. Verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Down to verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, and my tongue's in a pretzel. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. There's that indwelling sin. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, my my physical body, another law that's waging war against the law of my mind and, and making me captive of the law of sin that dwells in my members. You can see very viscerally the struggle that Paul's walking through. I believe he's speaking as a believer. That's another conversation. I remember a Bible school professor, he called it the spiritual hamster wheel. And if you can identify with this, and I don't know what you know particular vice in your life that you're struggling with right now. Maybe for you it's an anger problem that you just find yourself blowing up at people all the time. And you can't seem to contain this rage. Maybe it's a substance issue. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's a self-control thing with fear with food or, or your tongue or shopping, spending money, I don't know. And, and all of us are struggling with many things at any one time. But you take one of those and see if you can identify with this hamster wheel that Paul finds himself on. And this is kind of what it looks like a little bit. Like, we desire to do the right thing, right? There's a new spirit in us as believers. If you're not a believer, you, you don't have that deep in, within you. But I desire to do good. I desire to do the right thing, to stop doing the bad thing and to do what God wants me to do. So I desire it, but then look what happens next. I attempt to do good. So I want to do the right thing, but when I go to take that step to do the right thing, what happens next? Man, I get, I get, I get jacked up. I get, I get hopeful. I get excited. I'm going to do it this time. Man, I'm going to show God. I'm going to please Him. I'm going to do what He wants, what I really want to do. And so then we have this renewed vigor, right? I'm going to get this thing. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. But then what happens in your experience, and I know it's been in mine, we experience failure. I do the thing that I didn't want to do. I don't do the thing that I know I was supposed to do, that I I really wanted to do in my spirit. So then comes this frustration. Why did I do that again? I can't believe I continue to fail at the same thing over and over and over again. So then I apply pressure. Well, what if I try harder? If I grit my teeth a little bit tighter, if I try a little bit harder, then I'm going to get it. But of course, that doesn't work. And so it leads us to exasperation. We just are at our wit's end. And when we're there, there's nowhere to go for us, we feel, but despair. And we just kind of give up. Man, apparently this isn't going to work. And then after some time, after the cycle hums, we go back to the beginning. And, man, I want to do good. And I try to do good. And I get hopeful and excited. And we, the hamster wheel spins, and it spins, and it spins. My mind wants to do one thing. My flesh does the exact opposite. And it's exhausting. So here's Paul's prognosis. Dr. Paul, he says, Nothing is good in my flesh. Verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now we gotta we gotta pay attention here. Okay, there's a lot going on. But what Paul says is there's nothing good that dwells in me. This sin nature, this indwelling sin. This is an unwelcomed guest in my, my, my body. This is an alien. This is that roommate that I that I don't want. And it's no longer reigning, it's no longer my master. But it's still very present and its lies are still very real. And he says, man, this is the, the thing that's doing the sin in me. That, that's sin. That's sin operating inside of me, my sin nature. And then he says in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Context, my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, this is so important. This is so important that we identify the source of the problem. He says, this is not you. It's the sin nature that dwells in you that's the problem. See, and we we have to get this straight. This is not me. This is not my truest identity. Who I am now in Christ, now and forever, is not sin. I can go back to sin, and that's the problem, but it's not me. 1 Corinthians 6, I'm not making this up. It's beautiful. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually sexually moral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And now look at what he wants to say to you. And such were some of you. Such were, 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 were some of you. That's what you used to be but, but, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, you were made right in God's sight. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Look at me. He says, that's not who you are anymore. That's not who you, that's that's who you were. That's who Christ came to crucify, the old nature, but it's not who you are anymore. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I want to tell you this morning, there is an infinite difference, listen, between sin-loathing and self-loathing. There is an infinite difference between sin-loathing and self-loathing. We are not called to a worm theology. How terrible I am, woe is me, I'm such a terrible person. No, he says the problem in me is, is my sin nature. Who I am, I'm a child of God. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm loved enough that he left heaven to die in my place. That's who I am. The problem is that sin nature in me. And when I go back to it, nothing is going to be born but, but sinful fruit. And that's what confession is. Confession is just agreeing with God. It's stepping outside and calling your sin exactly what God calls your sin. You're right, God, there is nothing good there. But how often do we find ourselves disappointed at ourselves, frustrated at ourselves? And you know why that is? It's because we're still looking for something good in ourselves apart from Christ. One of the most convicting uh, quotes that I've ever read is from William Newell. He said, to be disappointed with yourself is to have believed in yourself. And man, if you're frustrated with you today, it's because you still think there's something good there. And it's the same reason we get disappointed with other people. Same thing, to be disappointed with someone else is to have believed in them. People will come to me and they go, Pastor, you have no idea what that person did. And I'm like, no, I really do. Like, I understand that at the depth of everybody's sin nature, we could all be the most vile creature on the planet. The ability to be Hitler is within all of us, given the right opportunity and right circumstance. And until we see the depth of our sin, we are never going to cry out to what Paul does in verse 25. You see, it's it's actually the mature believer that understands how deep the problem is. We can't fix this, this sin nature up. And once we understand the depth of our sin, we turn to the power. We turn to the power. Verse 25. Paul says, Wretched man that I am. And when he says this, is so interesting. This word wretched, this is the Greek word for being tired after a long battle. <laughs> so here's Paul waging war, flesh and spirit in him. And at the end of it, he goes, Man, I am whooped. I am exhausted. And we've all experienced this when we hop on that spiritual hamster wheel and try over and over and over in our own effort to conquer the sin. And the failure that we experience, it's exhausting. We're tired after a battle. But look at where Paul goes, and this is everything. This is everything. He doesn't turn to despair. He doesn't turn to hopelessness. He says here, and what's so interesting is he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Notice he doesn't say what will deliver me from this body of death. Not what six, seven, eight steps do I need to do to get better? What do I need to do to, to give it more effort to overcome the sin? It's not a what do I need to do, it's who Will deliver me from this body. We don't need a better performance. We need someone, capital S, outside of ourselves. And there was only one man who ever lived who was both willing and able to deliver us. And he lived 2,000 years ago. And he came and he did exactly that. He says in verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brother and sister, There's hope. There's hope today. And that's exactly what chapter 8 is all about. The victory says we are more than conquerors. Says there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. Says we are co heirs with Christ. Says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And it's important to realize this is not some cage fight with the flesh and the spirit between two equal opponents. And we just kind of hope that today the spirit beats the flesh. Like, I got money on the spirit, but I don't know. The flesh is pretty good on Mondays. Like, we'll just kind of see what happens, right? We're just going to see how it all weighs out. These are not two equal opponents. Jesus defeated sin once and for all. We are not called as believers to live in continual defeat. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's not pointing us to, well, you're a believer, but you're still going to experience all. No, but what he is saying is that no Christian lives continual perfect victory over their sin every day you, you all know that if you're a believer of jesus more than like 12 seconds you've experienced this in your life and what he's saying is in these moments when we fail to experience christ's triumph over our sins romans 7:14 to 25 is the normal healthy response i love what john piper said about this when we see when we come to the end of the the rope here in chapter 7 you kind of look at what paul's trying to say here and he says there's three things first of all i say i love the law of god Remember, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's God-breathed. It's spiritual and good. I love God's ways. I I, I love, I love, his ways are higher than my ways. His His law is good and it's right. I love what he wants of us, what he requires of us, what he gives us in Jesus. But then, man, I hate what I just did. I, I hate what I just did. That sin nature that I went back to it, that's wrong and I'm gonna confess, I'm gonna see it the way God sees it. Call it out for what God calls it out as. And then I say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. This is not me trying harder. This is me surrendering myself to the who that will save me, deliver me from this, this body. Nobody should want to live this way. Nobody should settle to live this way. But when we do, this is to be our response. And listen, we're not called to put a mask on and pretend like everything's fine We're not called to lie about our sin. We're not called to live on the superficial level that we don't see the depths of our own sin. We're not called to be a poser, a hypocrite. We're not called to be blind to our own failures. We're not called to judge others and hope that we might feel a little bit better about ourselves. We're called to come honestly and humbly before our God and to fully embrace the gospel of Jesus. And until we've properly identified the players at war, The problem of our flesh, the prognosis that there's nothing good there, we're not going to plug into the new power source. And I want to end with I want want us to take heart with something, and I want us to take heed about something. So let's let's take heart. First first thing, take heart. And if you're experiencing this battle raging within you this morning, like if you you're experiencing that hamster wheel, even as we've talked today, I want you to know that this spiritual schizophrenia that you're experiencing, it's not a warning sign that you're not saved. I believe it's actually an encouragement that you are. It's, it's a, the, the battle inside of you is a sign that you, that you are his child. Because listen, the unbeliever doesn't experience that kind of struggle to that level. Because the Spirit of God is not in them. That level of war is not being engaged with and Galatians 5 16, 17, excuse me says this for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do there's a war going on inside each of us and listen this is Paul writing he's like Christian Chuck Norris like if Paul like in the spiritual hall of fame if he's experiencing this kind of struggle man you're in good company like, it's, it's okay for you to be experiencing this struggle. All of Jesus' followers do. Becoming a Christian doesn't just immediately solve all of our problems. And everything's just fine, rainbows and butterflies. It actually brings up a whole bunch of conflict that never happened pre-Jesus. There's this conflict, this war that didn't happen when we were just simply in the flesh in bondage to sin. So take heart. God is doing his good work in you, and his promise is to finish what he started. Take heart. Heart, but also take heed. Take heed, Paul says, lest you fall. See, until we see the depravity of our flesh, the depth of our sin, we're going to keep trying to dress it up, make it look prettier. We are not called to change our old life, we're called to exchange it for a new life. But the problem, if I can be honest with you, I don't think most people, I don't think most of the issue is us over despairing in our sin. It's actually most of us don't even see the depth of the problem and the destruction that is in the sin nature. So why is it that we don't struggle? Why is it we don't even necessarily get to the level of despair that Paul was getting at here? I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, There's a link in your uh, sermon notes to a guy, his name is Pastor Bob Deffenbaugh, and uh, it's a a commentary that uh, Paul had found when we were doing our preaching team, and I would encourage you to look at that link, that's where I got the the Johnny Erickson Tata story from the beginning, and um, it's a really good walkthrough of this passage, and one of the things, he, he talks about why, some of the reasons why you might not be despairing today, when in fact, maybe there should be a little bit more despair in our lives, in that we see sin for what it really is. And here's a couple reasons to share with you. A, he says, sometimes we redefine our old sin, and we give them new Christian labels. So we're, we're calling things Christian when really it's still sin. So maybe there's somebody out there with this massive ego, but we're just calling it zeal for the kingdom, right? Like, they're just out there, like, in the business world, taking names and wiping people out, and it's like, mm, excellence, all things under the Lord, right? Like, no, man, you're, you're, you're killing people, Right? Or the person that's a gossip and we call it a prayer request, right? Did you hear Sally was sleeping around? We should pray for her, right? We give Christian labels to sin and we don't realize we're struggling with it. B, we live super superficial, hypocritical lives, denying the reality of sin and failing to live as as God requires. We kind of live on the surface, just kind of coasting along, kind of this pharisaical approach to our lives that, man, if I'm in church and I'm not drunk, God's going to be pretty happy with me. And we don't see the depth of the problem that lies underneath some of the symptoms that we might call sin, when really the root problems of pride and jealousy and anger, man, they're not even being touched. C, we teach believers to cope with their sin, that we just say, man, well, that's just, that's your lot in life, like, that's just kind of how it's going to be for you, and you just kind of kind of deal with that, when the reality is, Paul says, no way, we've got to get to the place where we realize we can't live with it, that it had to be put to death. This is, this is a matter of life and death, destruction or flourishing as a believer. D, we, we trade socially unacceptable sins for socially acceptable sins, right? Ones that people would kind of be more okay with. It. Maybe I'm not like pillaging and murdering like some barbaric Viking, but I find myself steeped in envy and gossip and pride and all sorts of things that, listen, in God's eyes are just as destructive, just as condemning. Finally, we, we can't stand seeing people put themselves down and we think of them, and think of themselves as wretched, so we attempt to build their self-esteem. Now listen, I think this is coming from a good place, like we don't want anyone to, to be stuck in these places, right? But what, what often what is a good motive ends up being a bad idea. And we come along someone go, oh, no, it's, it's all right. It's okay. It's, it's, don't worry about it. And what it devolves into is flattery. No, you're good, man. No, and we try to build them up. We try to build up their self-esteem, but we do it in the wrong way. And we build up the flesh instead of acknowledging, no, there is nothing good there in your old nature. The only hope that we have is this new spirit of Jesus that we've been given united with ours. He's the only hope. He's the only good in us. But in him, man, we are accepted by God as his children. I remember one of my Bible school teachers, his name was Butch. I'm pretty sure he was a part of the Italian mafia. And he'd come into class, and he'd look at us, put his chin on the hand like this, and say, Some of you say, you're not that bad. You're right you're much worse. You are a blowout, and you don't even realize how much of a blowout you are, right? I was like, good to see you too, Butch, right? (laughs) Like, what he was talking about was in, again, in our sin nature, not self-loathing, sin-loathing, until we come to realize how deep the sin problem is. This, This is not extreme makeover flesh edition, Right? Or we just try to gussy up the flesh, make it look prettier before God, maybe in hopes that he'll now accept me. Realize that nothing in our own strength, in our own flesh, will be pleasing to God. The only pleasing person to God in the history of the world on their own was Jesus. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. But now he lives in me. And God is accepting me because of what Jesus did. It's not extreme makeover flesh edition. It's crucifying the old self. This is the beautiful truth of who we are in Christ. Galatians 2, and then we'll be done. I have been crucified with Christ. I, old nature, it is no longer I, the old me who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in the body, the physical body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who loved me, who loves you, who loves you and gave himself up for you and gave himself up for me. Brother and sister, victory is ours in Jesus. And just like Johnny Erickson taught us, we don't have to live a paralyzed, defeated life. We've been given the spirit of the risen Jesus indwelling us. We are more than conquerors. He's given us victory. And as we open chapter 8 next week, we're going to discover the beautiful truths of what it means to walk in this victory in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we all in this room can identify with times, maybe even right now, where we're on that spiritual hamster wheel. We see, we identify with, with the, the struggle, the internal battle of flesh and spirit. And, and God, there are days that I know I feel that we each feel like there is nothing in the cards for us but despair and hopelessness. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace in this room to take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on Jesus. Who will save us from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus. I thank you that he came to this earth, that he died in our place, that we died with him, and now we're risen to this new victorious life. I pray, Lord, that in this room, that we would be a gospel-centered community, not coming pretending like everything's fine, that we're not, we're not struggling with the things we're struggling to, but that we can come with masks off as we really are and call sin out for what it is and acknowledge that it's not that we don't sin, but that we've been saved. And I pray that we would be faithful to one another to preach the gospel to each other, and point each other to the true power, the true salvation, and who Jesus Christ is. And Father, as we now shift our focus to just praising you together through song and through the taking of the bread and the cup, I just pray, man, that we would not be focused on making ourselves better, but fully embracing who Jesus is for us and in us and through us. It's in his victorious, beautiful name that we pray. Amen.